0: If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after years working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out there on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. I'm so glad you're joining me today as I chat with nurse and author T.C. Randall. T.C. Randall was an emergency room nurse for 14 years. He worked in one of Canada's busiest ERs located in British Columbia Three years ago, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and has been unable to work since then. His book, The View from the Wrong Side of the Day, was published one year ago. Since then, he's been working diligently to further his writing career. He's also an advocate for better access to mental health for healthcare workers, which leads us into this conversation about broken systems, daring leadership, and practical changes to transform the system from the inside out. Now, I have to tell you, I met TC by email. He introduced himself to me and sent me a copy of his book. And when I got the chance to read it, I laughed so many times throughout the course of this book because it's such an accurate reflection of what it feels like to be in crisis and emergency work. And I think that there's so many translations, whether it's just to healthcare or across to other first response and frontline work. I think it really echoes a lot of the things that I hear from many of the clients that I see and serve who do first response and frontline work. I'd really recommend the book. Again, it's called The View from the Wrong Side of the Day, and we're going to post a link to it in the show notes today. Let's get started with our interview. All right. Welcome, TC. I'm so glad that you're here to join us. And I was hoping that, you know, I got to read your book. I got to um, get a bit of an inside view about your background and some of your story. But for those who haven't had a chance to do that yet, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what led you to the work that you do as an ER nurse and a bit of your story.
1: My name's TC Randall. Uh, It's that's a pseudonym obviously um so i won't go into my real name here but um I started out uh, in nursing, and I entered nursing school in 2002. Um, I was already in my 30s at that point, so it was a second career for me. Um, it was actually watching the series ER that um, sort of inspired me to go into nursing, especially uh, Juliana Margulies' character. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nurse Hathaway was one of my heroes. Um And it was unusual because I actually went into nursing school knowing exactly where I wanted to work. Mm. Um, That was, you know, they kept saying, keep your mind open. That was sort of the message we got in nursing school. There's so many areas to work in. It's like, no, I know where I want to work.
0: (laughs) I'm determined. It's the ER for me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so, and I was a bit unusual too in the fact that I went, I was one of the first in BC to go straight from nursing school into the ER um, with a very short gap in between there. Uh, Up until then, it was sort of encouraged that you spend a few years working the wards in the hospital and then just to gain some experience, and then transfer down to the ER. So it was uh, quite a unusual experience to go straight into the ER, uh, yeah. but it all sort of fell into place. So <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well, and it's I can imagine that there's some of the gradual entry pieces of of having some experience on the wards first, or in other areas that maybe has some pre- some preparedness pieces. For the ER or other departments like that. Um, yeah. Do you think that there's like trade-offs for the fact that you started so quickly into the ER?
1: Um, I think because there have actually been studies done on this that show uh-huh. that it's actually, um, there's pluses and minuses. Right. Um, one of the pluses is, that they found is that uh, because ER nursing is so unique, Um, oftentimes nurses who come from the wards have difficulty making the adjustment because they've gotten used to a certain structure.
0: Right, and the pace would be super different. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And certainly I think I mentioned in the book the nurse that had the greatest difficulty um, doing the ER course was a nurse who had like 15 years experience on the floor (laughs) and had a hard time making the transition. Totally. So, um, but I definitely think the hospital where I started out certainly did not have the structure to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. Um, There wasn't enough um, experienced support Uh, to make the transition Um, certainly the place I ended up working uh, there was a large it was a larger department there was a larger staff pool um, so the mentoring piece was there in a much stronger way yeah Um, otherwise I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to do it <laughs>
0: yeah that's fair
1: yeah
0: well and that is like a significant factor right the support pieces we have in place yeah to help facilitate some of that adjustment and transition and learning yeah. and growing yeah fair so tell us a little bit about where things are at for you now
1: uh well right now um i've been i've been in therapy for three years <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> Certainly, I, 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 you know, we'll talk about this maybe a bit later, but um, certainly I think I was in the wrong kind of therapy for the first two years, which is yeah. why it's taken so long. Yeah. Um, after doing several months now of therapy that is more geared towards my condition, mm-hmm. um, I certainly feel improved. Uh, yeah. It's not gone away. It's managed, mm-hmm. um, which is a different beast altogether. Yeah, it <laughs> um, yeah. It's I've had to learn how to recognize when my anxiety is starting to go up and um, develop tools to sort of keep it from getting away from me.
0: Yeah. So it's yeah.
1: A, it's a much different approach.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, fair. Fair. So you've been off work now for how long?
1: Three years. On and for off. three um, years. On and off. I did go back. I went back um, and we did a, a return to work early on in the process, which didn't yeah. work. Um, yeah. Because um, I was basically in, I was in a different area, but many of the same parameters were in place. Totally. So it didn't, it didn't work. Um <laughs> And then when COVID first started, I had a job uh, for a couple of months where I was teaching other nurses about COVID. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, that was interesting work, but uh, it didn't go on for very long. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: fair enough. Well, and I know that kind of in this process of being off work, you've spent your time writing a book about. Yes. Um, what that experience has been like for you and the process of how you got to where you are right now struggling with some of the pieces connected to PTSD yeah. um, and some of the reflections about what kind of built in your world around that as it relates to your work. Um, And so, like I said, I did get a chance to read your book, The View from the Wrong Side of the Day, a story about nursing, PTSD, and other shenanigans, which I love that you use the word shenanigans in (laughs) the book title. That's fantastic. Um, You actually have a lot of chapter titles that I giggled at every single time um, because they were super, just super good and random. Um, And I love that one of the things you said early in the book is that you you kind of shape this frame of reference for the reader about how to prepare for reading what you've written. Yeah. Um, and you include this piece about how part like that the reader will notice that it's kind of disjointed in different ways and in different places, and that you've left it like that deliberately because it feels like a reflection of how your brain is working. Yeah. Um, and it feels like it kind of takes the reader along for the ride of how a brain with PTSD, thinks and experiences and reflects and processes and i when i first read that i kind of went oh i'm super interested about what that's going to look like (laughs) as i continue to read because i literally work with ptsd all day long um it's what i've done my entire career and so it was really i mean fun is probably the wrong word to use for the average person but as a trauma (laughs) therapist really fun to get to, to walk <laughs> alongside that. And and the whole time I'm reading it, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that's totally how my client's brains work. <laughs> this is totally <laughs> how they talk about things. And it is disjointed. And it is hard to have like a cohesive narrative yes. that feels like it goes from like beginning, middle to end. Yeah, um, there are these things, little like squirrels. are not
1: like... linear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right? They're not. It was so good to have that. I actually really enjoyed how you did that. Um, And I enjoyed and appreciated that you kind of front loaded that and left that as just a part of the experience of reading your book. Um, And so I know that your story does include dealing with PTSD related to workplace trauma and stress. And I wonder a little bit if you can share a bit more about that experience. So how that developed for you, the factors you feel like the system contributed, some of those pieces.
1: Um, Yeah, so I think, um, first off, my story is somewhat common, I think, in healthcare. But it's also there are unique qualities to it, just because of where I worked and no, I don't want to go too much into detail about where that was, but mm-hmm. um, our ho- the hospital I worked in was rather unique um, in terms of how busy it was and the structure that was in place at the time. In healthcare, we've sort of set up this structure where labor is seen as sort of an, ex- uh, an expendable piece. Yeah. Um, where it's become uh, certainly, it's the biggest expense in healthcare is paying for the people. But I think it's it's seen as an expense that we can cut out, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is very dangerous. I think totally. And uh, it's made working in healthcare a very particularly. Um, hazardous environment when it comes to mental health. Um, yeah. We're f- consistently overloaded. Um, in the ER where I worked, in the sort of critical area, uh, we were supposed to have uh, four patients per person per nurse. Right. Yeah. Um, and we went to we went through a period where we had up to eight. So that's yeah. twice the recommended totally. nurse to patient ratio. Um, the hospital itself was consistently running at one hundred and forty percent capacity. Yeah. Right. So we had people shoved in every corner of you know broom closets, sunrooms, any anywhere where they could think to stick people. They were. Yes. Uh, we'd have inpatients sitting in the ER for two, three days at a time. Uh, particularly if they had to go to particular areas like telemetry or something like that where there's a finite sort of amount of beds. Um, And all that really sort of uh, created an atmosphere where the nurses who were toiling in that environment were stressed every single day right when you're uh, there were days when I literally probably couldn't have picked out my inpatients from a lineup at the end of the Mm day right my entire interaction with them would be you know peeking my head in the door twice a day and making sure they're still alive and that was about it Um, the nature of the emergency department is that the, the emergency gets the attention Right. So new people are always our priority when we're working there. And, but, at, but at the same time, at the end of the day, when you're leaving work, and it's a peculiar thing, I think, to anybody who works in a, that sort of a career, be it you know, Mm -hmm. uh, healthcare, the military, police, et cetera. um, We have this sort of perfectionist (laughs) ideal that we hold to. So at the end of the day, it's never your successes that you're taking home with you. It's always the failures. Totally. when you're leaving work at the end of the day going, I don't even remember if I talked to that person throughout the whole day. That's what you're taking home with you. Yeah, for um, sure, and that went on for a very long time. Mm-hmm. uh It, I went through about a year's period where I wasn't even sure what was happening to me. I just knew that, yeah. you know, things were changing. Uh, yeah. I was irritable all the time, um to the point where I'd actually feel rage sometimes mm-hmm. of the littlest things, and I don't yeah. mean that as an exaggeration I mean rage yeah, right? um, totally. or extreme sorrow or and mood swings back and forth between the two my right. my emotional responses to things were completely out of proportion to the yeah. events that were happening um, yeah. I was having consistent nightmares um, and just feeling... And I had a chronic migraine for about a year as well Mm -hmm. that wouldn't go away no matter what. Um, And, you know, we did like CT scans and all sorts of things. Right, like all of the things to rule Um, out a medical piece. Yeah, and couldn't find the cause. And so all these things were happening and I knew they were happening and and yet I had no sort of words for them. I didn't know what was happening to me, and um, then we had a particularly bad day uh, in which I was the primary nurse in uh, several sort of back-to-back critical cases, and and it just tipped me over the edge. Um, yeah. So, yeah. in when we talk about trauma and post traumatic stress, everybody likes to sort of focus in on that particular day, yes, and it's the uh, claim it's sort related of like, oh, incident, that's, right? yes, and that's, yeah. <laughs> that's when it happened. And but yeah. I, but the reality is, I was sitting on the edge for a year beforehand, yeah, yeah. and it just and that was just the thing that pushed me over the edge if it hadn't have been that day it would have been the next or the next or the next right? right so it wasn't yeah um and i think that there's a real one of the biggest challenges throughout this process has been that um people don't really understand the difference between say a post-traumatic stress and complex post-traumatic stress yeah um and that's, that's been a real challenge throughout this
0: whole process. Mm. So when you share that piece, the difference between post-traumatic stress and complex post-traumatic stress, where do you feel like you fit in that? And what differentiates those for you? Uh,
1: so for me, the um, I'm definitely on the complex post-traumatic stress side. Yeah. Um, because my even though the events of that day didn't, push me over the edge I was already there and it was and it stemmed from this constant feeling of being vulnerable being unsafe being um, unable to sort of control my environment or have any sort of meaningful um way of creating a space that was safe for me and my patients
0: right there's like limited agency
1: yes and the um but because the agencies that are designed to help (laughs) in this um are very much geared towards um regular post-traumatic stress totally um like i mentioned at the beginning i was actually through you know the different agencies i was actually in therapy for regular post-traumatic stress for two years which helped but didn't um it was it was the wrong therapy yeah and it didn't and it didn't do anything to sort of aid me in getting back to any sort of meaningful employment or life or anything else totally
0: yeah well, and you're right. Like I think when I talk with people about the idea of PTSD, like certainly there are um, experiences that lead to PTSD that are, you know, the one off things. It's a car accident or, yeah. you know, witnessing something traumatic or whatever. And, and you know, we can have people who have had very few other bad things happen in their whole entire lives where that one thing very quickly erodes their ability to feel safe, usually in pretty specific contexts. Like I feel unsafe when I'm driving after I've had a car accident, things like that. The treatment protocol around that looks quite different than when we're dealing with something that is really persistent, right? And one of the realities is that um, work like what you do as an ER nurse, and I think work like what a lot of first responders and frontline workers do is a little bit like Chinese water torture like it's not any one drop that is the like insurmountable thing it's the accumulation and the wear of that that just it's crazy making and it's hard to feel any power over it like no matter how hard i try i can't make it stop dripping yeah right and so there's this limited sense of power, control over our lives. And when we're spending, you know, 12 hours a day on our rotation in that, it's it's not okay. Like, we're not okay as people to feel that not in control for that much time yeah. every day. <laughs> it's just yeah. not how we're wired, right? Which is why I often say, like, The reality is, is no one comes out of these kinds of jobs unscathed. Like there's no version of reality where you actually can, the human body is not wired to do these things. Well, long-term without any amount of support.
1: Yeah. And I also think that to go back to your Chinese water torture analogy, um, that there's a big piece of that when it's your employer who's Responsible for the torture, right? So the people totally. you feel should be um, at least protecting and supporting you in that role are not.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> and I think that's common, true, too, across the board in all these. Totally,
0: totally. So once
1: you've sort of, um, once your youthfulness is <laughs> sort of in question or at an end, it's uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's very little support from. Um the people above you, yeah, I remember one particular day when it was in the news that you know our hospital was holding patients in the hallways and things like that, mm. and management actually went on the news and said, No, that's a lie
0: <laughs> wow. uh, and
1: And we were watching this as I was looking around and there were like six patients in our hallway. Right. And when you feel that sort of lack of uh, support and lack of acknowledgement of what you're Mm -hmm. going through from the people who are, who sort of, who are supposed to have your back, um, that letdown when you're when you're already facing a, a environment where you don't feel safe, yeah. is it, it quadruples the impact of
0: it? Totally. Well, and it's that piece, right? Of like, we want to perceive that our employer and manager and supervisor and whoever else is kind of involved in that upper level yeah. of of system. Um, we wanna believe that we get to expect that they have our back. And I think that's one of the very unfortunate misconceptions about the work, is that when we walk in with that expectation, we almost set ourselves up for the disappointment of the fact that we're gonna see over and over again that that's not the case. And one of the things I think we've been talking about in this series um, following Brené Brown's work, is this idea that we have to value people. Like if we don't value the people who are doing the work, we run out of them, like we burn them out. And then where how are we further along? So like now your hospital has lost someone who has vast experience and wisdom as a result of that experience. And they're going to refill that position with someone who's like brand new and has no idea. And how are they better off as a result of that? So it's like this lack of investment into something that actually would be more fiscally responsible and more effective in terms of service and care but we are too busy just doing the runaround to actually invest care in people so in the series that we've been doing we've been talking about um this idea of revolutionizing the system by creating a, a a group of people who have an interest in becoming that type of leader and who you know as they grow into their roles over time and increase their um, leadership capacities within their environments, wherever that might be, that they would have the ability to create influence by being the kind of leaders who give a crap about the people who do the work, Yeah. right? Because the challenges, and I say this a lot on the show, is that your your job is hard enough. Like the job of treating patients is hard enough. Like that should just be the hardest part of your day. And what's really unfortunate is in a lot of these systems, whether it's You know health profession or social services or law enforcement or corrections or whatever is that that's actually not the hardest part of most people's day it's this like weird awareness that the people above me aren't actually supportive to me while i also do a job that's really hard
1: yes and and i think it even goes beyond that because in some ways it's my job is hard enough please don't make it harder.
0: Yeah, (laughs) um, totally.
1: And I think you really hit the nail on the head in that one of the things I talk about in the book is that whole fiscal responsibility piece. That the so-called fiscal responsibility that we practice ends up costing us way more than if we actually designed a system that was... um, built around what i call like the worst case scenario right um we spend you know we we issue these budgets and go oh look we're we're coming in 20 million dollars less than last year and everybody all everybody goes oh look at that and we're saving money and then at the end and and it looks good on paper and then at the end of the fiscal year it's like oh we're 400 million dollars over budget
0: (laughs) totally (laughs) because our expectations are unreasonable yes
1: and we end up so we end up instead of adequate staffing we end up paying x amount of dollars in overtime and um, and all these other factors that come into it right um when we talk about one of the things I, one of the examples I brought up in the book was the example of mental health spending. We, we know that for every dollar spent in mental health, we save $10, yeah. but there's a public perception that that's not worth pursuing. So we don't, and totally. we end up spending way more in the long run to yeah. deal with a problem that we could have dealt with way back. Um, yeah. There's a real lack, I think, in healthcare right now of proactive thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that came up at our hospital was this um, was an influx of uh, people from um, the lower mainland. And Mm. we all knew it was coming. It was in the newspapers. Yeah. But nobody thought to, hey, maybe we should have a plan for this. Yes. (laughs) It was just like, well, let's see what happens. (laughs) And, of course, disaster happened. Um, Like we went through, we've always been a busy hostel, but we used to go through a period during, say, the summer months when our numbers would be lower and everybody sort of got some breathing room. And then we got this huge influx of population, particularly seniors. Mm -hmm. Um, And we went from, you know, having normal ups and downs to being at 140% capacity for two years. And without respite, there was no breathing room for the staff. It was just every day. Yeah, slam. Um, I remember once, because um, I used to do uh, charge nurse duties in the ER quite, yeah. quite frequently, and about six months before I went off work, I told them, "No, I won't do it anymore." Mm-hmm. Um, I just flat out refused because it's there's no support. There's no, yeah. you you have all this responsibility without any of the authority to do anything about yeah. it. And, um, and all people do all day is tell you what they can't do to help you. <laughs> yeah. and
0: Yeah, which is crazy making. Yeah. yeah. And
1: it's, you know, like, oh, I need to get, I need to get the admitted patients out of the emergency room oh sorry we can't help you it's not the mm-hmm. answer you need and i remember once yeah. um standing up at the end of because twice a day we had meetings with all the charge mm-hmm. nurses to discuss you know flow in the hospital and things like that right. and uh and it was sort of like what, trying to do a rubik's cube right mm-hmm. like you just we'd sit there for half an hour and it'd be like okay if we move these three patients over here and then those two right. patients over there and then we move these patients over here and put those over there and then we'll have this yes. space over here available yes, totally. <laughs> and it was like that every day and i remember like the great standing, yeah and without and somehow it was expected to make room if you just put people the same amount of people in different spots with right. somehow open space. <laughs> and right. uh, but I remember standing up at the end of one meeting and just going, okay, so that's great that we've made it through today. What's our plan for next week? And everybody yeah. just stared at me.
0: Totally.
1: Right? There yeah. was, there was no forward thinking. There was no even concept that hey maybe we should get ahead of this maybe we need to be proactive and maybe we need to um start having a plan that is not just about today
0: totally well and you're like i think that goes on so many levels right like there's you're right so much about the proactivity that could happen around you know the patient's that we're having an influx in, and where do we put them and what do we do, and how do we staff more effectively and whatever. I think there's also this huge piece about the proactivity and helping people to recognize how they're doing in the midst of it. Like, I wish that was part of your guys' training more, (laughs) is how to self-assess whether I'm actually okay. Because I think that one of the challenges I face on my side of things is that I get people when they are so far down that rabbit hole Um, And I, I mean, I work with groups like, um, like the insurance providers and, you know, compensation groups and things like that, who are in that rush to like, okay, how quickly can we get this person back to work?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I kind of have this position of like, I mean, if you didn't have them to me so freaking broken, I probably could have done this a lot quicker, yeah. but here we are. So it's gonna take a while and you're yeah. gonna have to be okay with that because I'm like, I can do a lot of great things, but I'm not a miracle worker. And the challenge is, is that I think people who are helpers by nature, are really good at assessing everyone else's needs, but not particularly great at assessing their own. And if they're not given training and how to go about doing that, and when they need to, like the fact that that has to happen on a semi-consistent basis to have like these check-in points with myself, if that's not built into something for people, it will not happen until it is so far down the road that we are in that space where we can't function. And that is so much harder to come back from than if we had some of the proactive preventative care way earlier in the process, Yeah, right? Which is part of why, like, genuinely, it's exactly why this podcast exists. It's exactly why I made the indicators checklist that I made and the course that I created because I found that I was having this version of a conversation five times a day, five days a week, feeling like I want to pull my hair out because why aren't we just caring for people better that we can prevent them from needing this amount of care from someone like me? Um, And why isn't that being built into workplace systems? Why isn't that part of continuing ed for everybody? Why isn't that part of, you know, in-service trainings? Why isn't this a thing? (laughs) <laughs> and it makes me crazy.
1: Yes. And, I, I, and, I, and I think it's, that's the other piece is the culture within nursing needs to change as well, right? There is yeah. that sort of mindset that we're there for the patient. So we tend to forget about our own needs. And like I said, mm. right at the beginning of this interview, I went through a year where I didn't even know. I knew something was wrong. But yeah.
0: I, But But how do I name it? You get
1: used to this idea that, oh, I'm a nurse, so I should just put it, you know, just stuff it down and it'll go away. (laughs) And, of course, it didn't, um, which is how I ended up here. But there is that mindset, and it's still very strong. I think COVID has changed it quite a bit. Um, I think that conversation is now really coming up. But it's still in the early stages and it's something Mm -hmm. that needs to move uh, further along. One of the things that I did, um, one of my plans Mm -hmm. uh, is to, uh, I want to actually start a foundation that Mm -hmm. um, goes around and talks to nurses and nursing students about this yeah. um, I actually did a talk a while ago at the college I graduated from and the response was immediate right mm-hmm. like the um, I was told by one of the instructors later on after I'd given the talk that the instructors were busy for the rest of the day talking to students about their experiences because yeah. every student suddenly was like wait a sec I have something I want to talk about <laughs> totally. and totally. Um, and if that's going on with students it's going on with regular nurses as well but we just yeah. we don't talk about it we just shove totally. it down and, uh, and that and it just builds up and builds up and it does get worse and worse until yeah um, you know, when I went off work, it wasn't a case of that I recognized what was wrong with me. It was a case of I couldn't go in.
0: Yeah,
1: right. I got to work yeah. and couldn't go in the door.
0: Right, and, like it just absolutely shuts down function. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it was uh, it was a humbling experience. You know, yeah. luckily my nursing experience was such that I recognized what it was because I thought at first I was having a heart attack on the step. Yeah, I was like, no, totally. this is a panic attack. But um, it was a very unique experience. Yeah. Um, I, I I really think we need to. There needs to be a realistic structure in place for nurses where it's like, no, you need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And to, one of the hardest things, too, is after you have this breakdown, the resources that are available to you are sort of scattered, and it's not really clear where they yeah. are, and... um. And when you're in this place where your brain is basically already shut off, trying to go through this process of getting to the next step becomes its own traumatizing process. It's like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Right. And and I remember calling up. Uh, Just after I went off work and trying to see somebody professionally, um, Mm -hmm. because um, I was told it would be months through my claim process to see somebody. It was, it was three months before they set me up. Um, For somebody in an acute mental health crisis is rather a long time. (laughs) time. And, but but it was better than the year I was told yeah. it would take to get in to see a psychologist if I booked on my own.
0: Yeah,
1: right Like people, yeah. are, oh, we can fit you in next Christmas. Right. <laughs> right And that yeah. So that access to the system is um, yeah. is a very big piece as well.
0: Totally. Well, and the the information about where you even start as yeah. a consumer of those services, is super tricky like i think here we have um how often do i get asked the difference between me as a counselor and a psychologist and a psychiatrist like basic information like who does what and who you see about what thing seems scattered i've had gps who have asked me what i am compared to a like what makes me different than a psychologist and i'm going you don't know the difference how are you (laughs) explaining that to your patients who you're then referring to those services And that's super tricky, right? Like there's just a lot of pieces that are kind of broken in that system for sure. And the other pieces that, you know, things like um, like compensation groups and, and insurance companies and things like that have access to a pool of providers, but within that provider group, they don't necessarily have the person who does the right thing that gets sent that file. So, yeah. you know, I've had so many clients that are sent to me through those kinds of insurance providers where they've seen three or four other therapists before they get to me. And they tell me about those experiences and how they actually made things so much worse. Um, and then they find that suddenly we're doing trauma therapy because that's what I do. And it's such a different experience compared to what they've had up until that point. But it's hard to get in. Like it's hard to get into trusting that this is going to be different because I've already had these experiences that tell me that this just doesn't work.
1: Yeah. And I also find, like I found from a structural point of view too, there's a real reluctance, um, to talk about post-traumatic stress as it applies to healthcare providers, yeah. um, the number of times I've been told, yeah. not bluntly but politely, to shut up <laughs> from from different groups yes. is uh, is quite. Mm-hmm. phenomenal and it astounds me that we're yeah. still in that sort of mindset where it's like oh no healthcare is a wonderful profession and we don't want to talk about anything negative mm-hmm. right um, yeah yeah we can't even prepare the people coming into the profession to be open to talking about it or to be and That's for right. nurses they're working to be able to put a label to what they're feeling. Um, which is super yeah. important, too, about a year after I went off. The, what inspired me actually to write the book was yeah. that I had been talking about it um, and trying to get changes made within the system uh, mm-hmm. for a year, and then two more of my colleagues went off with the same symptoms.
0: Mm-hmm. Um
1: so writing the book was kind of like a public shaming in a way, <laughs> to yes. say, okay, if you won't listen to me, now I'm gonna go and sort of right. I'm gonna find a different them.
0: way of doing this. Um, yeah. But I
1: remember talking to one of my colleague, one of the colleagues who went off work, and he didn't even know what was wrong with him he was in the mm-hmm. same sort where he's like I'm, I'm crazy i don't know why but i'm crazy i'm yeah. being able to say no this is this is normal this is what it is this is why you're totally. feeling the way you're feeling was huge for him yeah. right and um yeah. That doesn't exist for the majority of people going off. It's like, totally. what the, what's wrong with me? Yeah. All I know is I'm uptight all the time.
0: Yeah, totally, right. totally. And I don't know how to define this. Right. Yeah, well, and you're right. Like, we we need to do better at at educating about what we're getting ourselves into. Yeah. And I think part of it is it's... Um, the culture contributes, right? So, you know, I remember when I was doing, when I was in grad school, uh, having professors that would say, you know, make sure that you take care of yourself, make sure that you prioritize you. And it was really great lip service, but then you would watch them and they're not doing any of it. And so you (laughs) get this, this like catch 22 in your brain where you're like, right, so we say good things, like take care of ourselves, but what we actually do is run ourselves ragged trying to make sure that everybody else is taken care of and okay, and we do that to our own detriment. Got it, that's what we do. That's what this is about, right? And so we talk about things like vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue, and we talk a good game, but whether it comes to actually doing it or not is a whole different thing. And the reality is, is my own experience was what then working my first job was in um, a a center for domestic violence and sexual assault survivors. And it was nonprofit, government funded. Um, And that was, again, very much the thing. We pay lip service to like, make sure you're taking care of yourself, make sure you do the things. But then as soon as you're like, I think I need to reduce my caseload by just one or two a week to manage myself a bit better for a little bit. No way. We need you to actually take three more, right? Like. There's just no room for it to be held well. Yeah. And so when we don't recognize and value the people who are doing the work, we get into this place where we burn them out so badly that we just lose them all together, which makes no sense, again, from this like fiscally responsible position where now your employer is probably paying for your insurance premium at a higher rate while you're off for three years while also having to employ someone who fills your position. How does that make more sense?
1: Yeah. And it also it also um, I think what happened like what happened in our ER was we hit a tipping point where senior staff were retiring or leaving to go to other areas, which put more pressure on the senior staff that were there. So some of them left and it just, until we hit a point where the ratio of new staff coming in to old staff that were there was huge. Um, And then, so when you're working in that environment and it's getting busier and busier, guess who that new burden falls upon? It falls upon the few um, people that you have left. And I found that every day where it's like a new patient comes into the ER, it's like, oh, who are we going to give it to? The guy who's got 14 years experience but already has seven patients or the new guy who's barely coping with four.
0: Right. Well, and even if we give it to the new guy, who's the new guy going to come to when he's stumped? Yes. Right. So like, yeah, the guy 14 years might even hit his ratio of patients. Right. I might only have four patients, but I actually feel like I've got 20 because there's three other new staff. who yeah. each have Four patients and I'm yeah, helping they, all of them because they can't hack it yeah. at this stage without support. Yeah. But then who supports the next guy? Yeah. Up? That's the hard part. Right. Like the support only goes so far. Yeah.
1: And one of the things that, um, you know, on the day that I actually went off work, um, I was actually one of the reasons why I was called in on all the traumas that were coming in was because I was in a mentoring role and on yeah. that day. I was actually orienting a new staff member. And as a result, I was extra. Well, no, yeah. I'm not extra. I'm already performing a job. <laughs> totally. So I had to abandon this new person who's yeah. you know, struggling in her own way to sort of yeah. get through the day. Um, so that I could deal with these things that there was nobody else to deal with.
0: Okay, so here's my curiosity. We've done a really good job, I think, of of identifying, the. I want to say trashing. I want to say we've done a good job (laughs) of trashing the system. Um, I'm trying to find a way to put that a little bit nicer. So I feel like we've done a good job of identifying the concerns and the challenges and the shortcomings of the system recognizing that the audience that we have for this podcast are people who I think actually really genuinely want to make a difference for the people they serve um, and their roles that they're in right now, but also for this system as a whole. What would you hope a future generation of leaders would learn as a result of some of your experiences and take forward if they were to be in a position where they had more significant influence?
1: I think, well, I figure it's a twofold question, and I think we've touched on both parts. Um, the first one is cultural. Uh, we mm-hmm. need to start approaching nurses and future nurses um, and Not to, I shouldn't even say nurses, anybody coming into this profession. So, doctors, Mm -hmm. lab techs, whoever they happen to be, anybody coming into a healthcare profession needs to be set up with the tools that they need to succeed. And that means Mm -hmm. that we need to start having a conversation about mental health. Yeah. right from the start we need to we need to have clear procedures in place for people to follow when they're in difficulty we need to have a conversation about here's how to avoid burnout here's what to look for in terms of burnout mm-hmm. and we need to make all that information readily accessible so that when people are in crisis they're not struggling to muddle through it all totally um and I think the other piece is structural. We need to stop this idea that fiscal responsibility means low-balling all the time. Yes. We, we need to have a system in place that, and I don't think it involves spending more money. I think it involves spending the money that we have better, mm-hmm. smarter. Yeah. We need to, as I said, plan for that worst-case scenario yeah so that we have those structures in place we have yeah. sufficient staff in place we have the resources that they need in place
0: yeah
1: right um, i think COVID really highlighted that problem of oh let's let's just spend the least amount we can at the beginning of the year and then wait for the fallout at the end of the year
0: and all of a sudden this
1: crisis comes along and it's and we're oh we don't have this we don't have that we don't have the other thing right Uh, we need to plan for that um ahead of time we need to be proactive about it we need to um and these aren't things that are coming out of nowhere, right? Mm-hmm. These are things that are already in place in other systems. Yes. Um, one of the things that I can't remember where it is, but the, there was a hospital that I saw um, that actually has, it's almost like an air traffic control center in mm. their hospital that does nothing but slow patients. That's okay. their entire duty. Wow! Right where they just do that all day. They get people home. They get people to different areas when they need it, and um, and it's reduced wait times in the ER for admitted patients by a significant amount. So these, right. so taking these ideas, we don't even have to reinvent the wheel. We just have to take these ideas that are working. That might cost a little bit in. beginning to get going and say let's Mm -hmm. let's do this let's try this yeah um because right now the 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 way that we're doing things is not functioning and it's not just functioning from a healthcare perspective it's not functioning from a patient perspective where it's like who, totally. who wants to sit in the hallway for 3 days waiting for a bed right like that yeah. um which delays healing which then del- which then means that they stay in hospital for longer which costs right. us more money <laughs>
0: totally well and that's the piece right it's like it's all interconnected yeah. so you know the guy at the top of the chain is saying well we need patient outcome and we need people in beds but we also need them out in home and like we want these different measurables right these yeah. different metrics that are are outcome-based driven pieces that management can look at and say look we're doing a great job um and yet the things the decisions that are happening at that level are hindering the outcomes that they're demanding yeah. for and it's the guys in between who get kind of pissed on for that inability to meet the metric yeah When it's the decisions that are happening further up the chain that really result in some of those pieces not functioning properly. And so it's this really tricky catch-22 of like the people that we piss on are the ones who lack the ability, right? You talked about this idea of like, we don't have the authority to do the things, really. So you put us as responsible for it, but we don't have the authority to do anything different about it.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I think that there's a lot of it has to do, we, we also need to, I think the beginning piece of that is changing perceptions with the public where it's like, yeah. you know, the things that you perceive are wrong with healthcare are not necessarily the things that are wrong with healthcare. Yeah. And and the people in healthcare have a better idea of what those problems are. So yeah. we need to stop running it as a popularity this. I remember totally. in, like in our ER, they built a brand new ER for us mm-hmm. because the public perception, of course, is, oh, the ER is always busy. and But what the public doesn't see is the reasons behind that, right? The mm-hmm. ER is sort of like the central hub between community care and hospital care. And a lack in either one of those areas backs up into the yeah. emergency room. And totally. um, so when they built the ER, I remember one of the surgeons one day was said it's like putting a bigger funnel on the same size hose. Yeah,
0: right? totally. <laughs>
1: and to look at it from that perspective and go, okay, well, maybe we don't need to spend millions of dollars fixing this one area when we can spend maybe even a little less money fixing this area and improve the flow through Um, well and
0: if we had that collaborative conversation with the people that are actually in the trenches doing the work and seeing the problems on all the different sides maybe we would have a more effective way of strategizing this but because we just take this top level view down and kind of look at it and go like, oh, I think this is the problem, right? Yeah. Then we really limit the scope of what we can do and make different.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that's so real and we also need to um, so there ne- so there needs to be a healthcare education piece. There needs to be a public education piece where we're like yeah. this. Um these are the ways you can help us. (laughs) And there needs to be a structural change in place that recognizes these functions and recognizes the input from frontline staff.
0: Totally. Good summary. TC, I've so enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I got a little riled up in it, but um, (laughs) this is what happens when I feel like we're talking about things that really matter. Like it's, it's, it's hard to me because I see the um, like catastrophic impact on a people level. And I think you're experiencing the catastrophic impact on a people level of this exact systems level broken piece. And I think it, I, feel no remorse whatsoever for getting riled up about it because I feel (laughs) like we need people who are standing up and saying, this is enough. Like we are losing good people to a system that's supposed to be doing good. So what is happening here? Something is broken in this process that this is what's happening. And it's happening so frequently, right? Like for you to be like, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, two more of my, you know, workmates went off. Um, I know in other industries, we're seeing a ridiculous um, amount of suicides and attempts at suicide because of the weight of the work yeah. um, and I think what you've shared here today while referencing nurses specifically at a lot of different points actually transcends out quite a bit yeah. to really all public service so I think any of the government funded um, really highly bureaucratically entrenched systems, whether that's health or law enforcement or corrections um, or social services. I see this a lot with social workers as well. Like, I think that there's a lot of transferability of the context of what we're talking about here and the implications that are true across the board, which is, I mean, just a whole different level of trying to recognize that we have a problem here. Right. And so I just super appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with me about your experience and some of your kind of wisdom and insight into the problem.
1: Um, maybe I could point out one more thing, too, when we're yeah. talking about this, is that um, this conversation that I've been having has been going on pre-COVID. Right? Yeah. Um, the crisis that we're now facing with COVID is beyond imagining. Um, One of the things that being an author um, puts me in contact with nurses from around the world and the crisis that is coming in terms of uh, mental health for healthcare providers is it's beyond comprehension. Um, We're already facing like in BC, we're short, we're looking at a shortage of 30,000 nurses in the next couple yeah. of years, that was pre-COVID. Yeah. And now talking to people, The there's a tidal wave of nurses who are going to be leaving the profession yes. after, after the COVID crisis yeah. um, is done. And, yeah,
0: I've heard the same thing from several paramedics yeah. um, and others that are kind of in that frontline health yeah. capacity. Because everyone's, I think everyone's committed to the, like, I want to see us through this. I yeah. feel committed to the best of my ability to get us through this. But as soon as this is done, I'm out. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I think that when we're having this conversation, it, it adds an urgency to it. Because totally. it's the crisis that we're going to be facing a year from now is
0: mm-hmm. tremendous. As we wrap up for today, I want to extend my thanks once again to TC Randall for joining us. You can find some of the key points from our conversation outlined in the show notes on our podcast webpage. You'll also find a link to his book, which I highly recommend. I also want to share that next week I'll be chatting with retired RCMP Staff Sergeant Jen Pound for another conversation about transforming the system and cultivating daring leaders. Jen has been known in BC as the public face of Metro Vancouver's Integrated Homicide Investigation Team, seen regularly on the news presenting details throughout the intense gang wars in the Lower Mainland. I'm thrilled to have Jen join us and share her wisdom and insights. I hope you'll meet us back here next week for that conversation. Continue to keep up the Good Fight Rebel Alliance, and until next time, stay safe.